I spoke earlier and mentioned the misunderstandings about Jesus that the Jewish people had when he rode into Jerusalem and that we still have in modern day. Um, I was reminded of this this week. I was listening to an interview with an author who writes historical fiction. I think his name is Stephen Pressfield. I don't know if any of you may have ever heard of him, but he writes historical fiction and he really likes um, ancient time periods before the Christian era. And the interviewer was asking him, why do you focus so much on such ancient history? Why do you like that time period so much? And he views that time of history as this wonderful time when humans really understood life because it was before all the corrupting influences of major religions and major philosophies such as Christianity. And he just lumped Jesus in with any other world leader or any other teacher who who comes with a moral um, system that we should live by. That if we just live like Jesus says, then everything will be okay. And it's just nonsense, he says. But that's, as we know, that's totally misunderstanding who Jesus was and who he even claimed to be. He didn't claim to be uh, the leader of a moral movement. He didn't claim that at all. He claimed something much more radical. And it was just interesting to me how this author so quickly just threw Jesus away, having completely misunderstood who he is and who he claimed to be. And um, the Palm Sunday crowd didn't understand. And I think it's still a danger that we may misunderstand, even church-going folks like us. So I'm excited this Sunday to just drill back back in on who Jesus is. And our passage today, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, is going to be helpful with this. Um, In this passage, Jesus says something that's pretty famous. You probably heard um, what he says at the end of this passage, but he basically explains why he came, what he's doing here. And that's what we're going to read together today. And I'll let you remain seated, um, but just listen or follow along in your Bibles or follow along on the slides to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And listen to figure out as though with fresh ears, as though you've never heard of Jesus, who he is and why he came. He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I just have three points of truth from this passage today to help us remember why Jesus came. The first is Jesus came to call. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Part of his purpose, one way of understanding Jesus's purpose is that he came to call. Levi is a good example. Uh, He's also known as Matthew, the same Matthew that wrote the book of Matthew. Look at how Jesus calls Levi for an example of this. Back in verse 13, 
He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. So this is right after he had healed the paralytic. And right before he healed the paralytic, he claimed to forgive the paralytic's sins, which was just shocking to the religious people. Then prior to that, he had cleansed a leper. Prior to that, he had healed all the sick that he could in a city uh, in in a night and cast out all these demons. And prior to that, he had taught with authority that no one had ever heard it before. So this huge crowd is just following him everywhere he goes. He's going out again to the sea in verse 14. And he passed by, as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Jesus came to call. What is this calling? Based on the example with Levi. It's really simple. Just follow me. Really, really simple. Not at all complicated. It's a two-word sermon. Wouldn't you love for me to get up here and preach a two-word sermon? I should have just today just gotten up and said, follow Jesus. Bible closed. Period. You're dismissed. See you Easter morning. Just follow me. And then Levi so okay, <laughs> just closes up his tax books, leaves. There's probably money out on the counter that he's counting, just leaves and just follows him. It's not complicated. Jesus came with a call, and it's very simple. It's follow me. And this is really important for us to remember around Easter time because I think often we think of Jesus as an inanimate object, that just sits on the shelf and it's sort of a good omen to have around or it's like a lucky rabbit's foot that we keep, you know, Jesus sort of by our side. And when we need him, maybe we'll pray a little bit, but mainly we live our lives and Jesus is just sort of a good thing in our lives. Just one more topping on our life pizza. But Jesus isn't like that. He calls and he says, follow me. And therefore, he can't just be in our life like an inanimate object. He's a real person that we have to respond to. And we either have to, like Levi, get up and indeed go and follow him. Or we say no. And ignoring the call is an answer. It is saying no. If, if Levi just pretended he didn't hear Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, follow me, he is answering. He's not following. He's saying no. Jesus calls follow me. Note that this is not instruction. This is invitation. He doesn't come up to Levi, the tax collector. Tax collectors were horrible people. I mean, as much as you like taxes now, imagine that you would be visited at tax time by an IRS agent who would tell you, you wouldn't have a chance to do TurboTax or any of that, or go to a professional who would try to advocate for you to pay as little as possible. You would just be there and the tax collector would say to you, you have to give me this amount. Don't question it or the Roman authorities will come and take it. And so you would just have to pay it knowing that almost all the tax collectors would charge more than the actual tax owed so they could keep the extra. So tax collectors were these wealthy guys who made their money by betraying their own people, collecting taxes for the Roman Empire and cheating them, cheating their own brotherhood. Levi was not a a good person. And yet Jesus comes by and he doesn't stop at his tax booth with instruction. He doesn't stop and say, Levi, you need to get out of this job. You need to stop 
being like this, you need to go back through your books and figure out all the people you've cheated and you need to give back what you owe. Then you need to go and read these five sections of scripture and write down four observations and study those, memorize this verse. And you start going to the temple and you start going to church. You have a daily quiet time. You need to do this stuff. Good luck to you. I'm out of here. He didn't stop there with instruction. He stopped with an invitation. Follow me. Just think about how much Levi would not have understood at this point. He probably heard rumors of Jesus. He probably had an idea who he was. Almost everybody in the region did. He was famous now. But just think about how much you still don't understand when you've been in church, many of you, for decades. Levi has been an outcast from God's people. Hated. He has not been in Sunday school. He's not been hearing the scripture. He, there's a ton that he didn't understand, a ton of unknowns. But Jesus comes with the invitation, follow me. And he responded and he followed. It's, it's not rules that Jesus calls with. It's relationship. He, he doesn't call out a bunch of rules. He invites into a relationship. He doesn't come with a pointing finger. He comes with arms open to bring in and embrace. Come, follow me. This is different from what many of us probably grew up with, um, where services would end with an altar call. And I don't mind altar calls, but how many of you grew up with a church that did a lot more altar calls than we do here? Okay. Did you ever hear instructions about accepting Jesus into your heart during the altar call time? Well, you know, it's not really a concept you find scripturally, accept Jesus into your heart. And it's a little confusing what that means. Like you swallow a spiritual pill that will medicinally like solve your heart problems. It's, it's more robust and practical and real life action oriented is the actual call. Jesus didn't stop at Levi's booth and said, hey, you should accept me into your heart. I'm out of here. He said, hey, you should get up, move away from your former life and follow me. You should take active steps to walk with me. Follow me. Now, I'm not, I'm not bashing the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart. I understand where it comes from, and I do understand where it can validly be used scripturally. But I do think it's a little confusing. It's, it's sort of soft, fuzzy language that doesn't always lead to actual Christianity. I've known many people who came down at an altar call, prayed a prayer accepting Jesus into their heart, and then lived a life that showed no fruit of actually following Jesus for the rest of their life. I know one man in particular, I'm not sure would even claim to be a Christian, but as a safety, he says, well, yeah, but I went forward at a Billy Graham crusade once. So even if you're right, I'm good. Well, no, you're not following Jesus. It's, Christianity is about following Jesus. And that's about practical everyday decisions about what we do, what we say, our money, our relationships. It's about actual response to the things that he has said to us. You know, I'll, I'll give you my example, my testimony I've mentioned to you before, but I was eight years old. I feel pretty confident when I heard the call from Jesus, follow me. I was just eight years old. You know, same age as my son, pretty much. Um, I was out in my backyard, at the backyard at my house where I grew up. Um, 
I thought it was huge. I thought it was just like this massive plot of land. It's really not that big. Now I'm an adult and I understand better. But I was out there. I was out there all the time anyway. And we had this, we call it the rock wall. It's going to be really hard to explain, but it, we had a slope. And then on the slope, we had built this rock wall so that the land there was just level before the slope down. And then it was rocked in. And I was back behind that. Because I would often like climb around the rock wall, you know, kid stuff, just trying to pull a giant rock off onto my chest. And um, luckily nothing like that ever happened. But I was back there doing whatever I did as a kid. You know, I didn't have screens or anything to look at. You know, I just standing there, I guess, what I did as a kid, just sort of standing around out there. And I remember kind of, I remember where I was standing. I can't remember the direction I was facing. Uh, we had some, some young trees that are all growing up now, but they were kind of in front of me. And the sun was sort of going down. There's nothing about that moment. I guess what I was thinking was about the stuff I'd been hearing from my mom as she teaches me about Jesus and from church and Sunday school. And something just sort of switched in my mind and in my heart. And all I remember really realizing is Jesus. It's going to be about Jesus from now on. It's I am meant to be about Jesus. That's really about all I think that I understood at that moment. But I do believe that's when he said, like he said to Levi, he said, Matt, follow me. And so I, you know, I started to as an eight-year-old and, you know, it's never been any different since. I mean, sure, I've sinned plenty. Um, you know, I won't even chronicle my adolescent years and all the sinfulness throughout that. But God's always been faithful and throughout the bottom line has always been, yes, I'm, I am following Jesus Christ. Yes, he is. He's my savior, but he's also my Lord. And I am following him. I know many of you have similar testimonies. I would love to start having a rotation where you folks, maybe one person, they give your testimony. That's something I've been thinking about for a while. Because um, I'm curious. I haven't heard everyone's story. I'm curious when you heard Jesus say to you, follow me. Now, some of you listening to all this, might be hoping I don't call you asking you to give your testimony because you're not sure you ever actually have heard him say, follow me. And maybe you're not sure that you ever had said, yes, I will get up and I will follow you. And maybe for you, Christianity has been a lot more vague and a lot squishier of an idea than this. And you know, it may be that you have been following Jesus, but you haven't thought in clear terms about it. But I just want to invite you to remember that Jesus came to call. He came to call people to follow him. That's a huge part of what Easter is all about, following Jesus. It's not just something to observe or something to learn from intellectually. It's someone to follow. And that, God has really been teaching me about this this year. You know, at the end of every year, Meredith and I brainstorm, what is the lesson or the scripture to put on the Christmas ornament we make for you guys? Um, and it seems to always be clear what the big idea was. Last year, I think, was be the church. And the year before that was let love be genuine. And I'm thinking so far this year, for me, it seems to be follow Jesus. It's such a simple idea. It seems like I would have gotten that way back in seminary. But I feel like I'm still, I'm still getting clear on, wow, that means really, really following him. Like when he says to be hospitable and open and generous with your things and your space and your home. He actually means for me when that, this random person stops by to like let them come in and <laughs> spend time and, and, 
it's real. It's real things. I actually have it printed on my filing cabinet in my office. Follow Jesus. So I don't forget. It's simple, but it's easy to move on beyond that and stop following him and do other religious stuff. So point number one, Jesus came to call. He came to call people to follow him. Point number two, Jesus does not call righteous people. Jesus does not call righteous people. Look back at how he explains this in verse 17. When Jesus heard it, what the scribes were, were grumbling about, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You have to understand who the scribes were. We are in this passage at the beginning of an escalating conflict between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And it would culminate, it would get really bad as time goes on for Jesus. So far, the scribes are just, they have a lot of red flags about Jesus. They're just not sure about him. Who is this man that comes in teaching with such authority? Who is this man that claims to forgive sins, which is blasphemous if you're not God? And now they're looking at him eating with tax collectors and sinners, and they're saying, why is this man who's supposed to be holy, authoritative teacher, healer, why is he hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? See, they had this misunderstanding that many of us have, which is that there's a continuum of unrighteousness and righteousness, and that we're all at different points along this continuum. Whether you're a Christian or not, there are the really, really unrighteous people, the not good people, the bad people, the Hitlers, the Stalins are over here. And then over here on the very, very, very good and righteous side of things is Jesus. And then maybe one step over would be like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham or whoever. And then most people figure that they are somewhere in this range. They're not that bad, but you know, they're not perfect, but I'm no Hitler. They're somewhere in here. And the scribes and Pharisees thought along those lines. They thought that they they probably would have put themselves right up here with like Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. They didn't think they were as good as God himself. But in terms of human goodness, they were at the tip top. They were the most religious. They understood the Bible the best. They kept the rules better than anybody else. So they saw themselves as right here. See, Jesus comes and just completely erases that whole continuum idea. And he comes with teaching like... For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he comes with teaching like uh, they call him good. And he says, why do you call me good? There's none good except the Father. He's challenging them because scripturally that's the case. It's not we're all varying degrees of goodness. It's sinful, sinless. Just two broad categories. And all of humanity without Jesus Christ is in the sinful category. The unrighteous category. For all have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. So yes, even Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, without Jesus Christ, they're over here in this category. Regardless of all the good works. Because we've all worshipped things more than we worship God. We've all failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're all a mess. And the one person standing over here in the righteous category is Jesus Christ. The scribes didn't understand that. So they're saying, why are you, who are you pretty far up on the continuum? Why are you 
hanging out with people down there on the continuum. They just completely didn't get it. So I want us to understand this concept of righteous. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The scribes were not righteous. This comes close to holy sarcasm here. He's not saying, well, you guys are righteous, so you don't need me. These people are sinners. They do need me. The fact is they all needed Jesus. None of them were righteous. But the scribes thought they were righteous. And this is really, really dangerous. This is one of the key dangers of being a church person. We can mistakenly think that we are righteous in of ourselves because of our religious practices or our good deeds or that we're cleaner in our living than you know, Joe Blow down the road. And it's a complete lie. It's a lie straight from hell. And it's a lie that will send many people to hell. Self-righteousness. So consider this sort of a, uh, a checkup. I'm going to give you a little self-evaluation test. Um, think of it like going to the dermatologist. Well, first, let me ask you this. Which statement is true? Exposure to the sun causes sunburn. Or exposure to the sun prevents sunburn. Which statement is true? Exposure to the sun causes sunburn. Exposure to the sun prevents sunburn. Well, they're both true. If, if I go out in the sun and I haven't seen the sun in five years, my skin's pretty much immediately going to just explode off of my body because of how white I am. They say gentle, you know, careful exposure to UV sunlight is good for us. We're humans. We need to be, have some sunshine. Doing it in the right way actually prevents being burned. It's different to just run out after winter and lay out in the sun versus at the end of summer after you've already had some sun. But exposure in the wrong way is hurtful. And it's the same way for exposure to God's word. There is a way to be exposed to this that will burn you, that will hurt you, that will inoculate you to the gospel that will char your your outer layer so that you never get the gospel or there's a way to be exposed to it that softens you in the right way and it's good so we all have been exposed to god's word quite a bit we need to take this test this is sort of a spiritual checkup and it comes from matthew chapter 23 i told you about this chapter last week matthew 23 is when jesus just lays it all out all his problem with the scribes. And I want to make sure that we are not self-righteous like the scribes. I want us to enter into Easter humbly with zero self-righteousness. So it's a nine-point quiz. I'm just going to move through it quickly. Number one, do you preach but not practice? Do you preach but not practice? Jesus says in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in, Mo sit in on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Do your words not match up with your actions? Do you speak more like a Christ follower than you live? If so, you might be self-righteous. Number two, do you demand rather than serve? Do you demand rather than serve? He goes on to say, 
They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Are you the type of person that has a very high benchmark for the morality, the holiness of other people? And yet when folks are struggling with sin, etc., you don't serve them, you don't encourage them, you don't go in as a Christian friend, you know, iron sharpening iron. You stand at a distance and demand and say, why are they this way? Why are they so bad? Number three, do you do good works, but only to be seen? He goes on, they, the scribes and Pharisees, do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. That's like the modern day equivalent of having a huge Bible that rides on the dashboard of your truck so everybody sees it. Giving huge amount of money at penny crusades so everybody sees it and hears the water bills hit the bucket. Is your motivation for the good that you do and the religious stuff that you do totally about what it looks like and how it makes you look? Number four, do you love being exalted? The scribes and Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Do you love being exalted? Do you love being applauded? for the good that you do and the religious things that you do? Do you love the pats on the back? Are you comfortable being exalted? Number five, do you work hard in ministry yet ultimately end up driving people away from salvation? Because that's what the scribes and the Pharisees would do. It says, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He is so harsh with these people. But the fact is they were very busy in ministry, but their motives were completely corrupt and their results were completely corrupt. And they just churned out more people just like themselves, self-righteous people. Number six, do you give blind guidance? He says in Matthew 23, verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. Are you quick and open with advice for other people that's completely divorced from God's word? Maybe you haven't studied God's word, lived by God's word in forever, but you're very quick with advice for others. Blind guidance. Number seven, Do you love religious practices more than you love God? Scribes and Pharisees would say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by its oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, If anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. See, the scribes and the Pharisees were totally consumed with the religious ins and outs and the the ways of the temple and the ways of sacrifice and the ways of worship to the point that they completely neglected the ways of God himself. It's possible to love church, 
It's possible to give your life to church stuff and religious stuff without loving God, without having a heart toward God. I don't want us to be like that. Number eight, do you obey the small matters of Scripture while neglecting the weightier matters of Scripture? Scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says to them, For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Scribes and Pharisees strain out the tiniest gnat. They are minute about obedience to the rules when it comes to the little things. They even tithe out of their spice rack. But they neglect the big matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. It's possible to be extremely detailed in our religious practices and yet neglect the big picture and become self-righteous while our hearts remain far from God. And the last last question in our little self-examination, do you work harder on your appearance than your substance? In other words, do you work harder on your externals than your internals? Jesus says of the Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. And he goes on, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how beautiful our Easter worship service is. It doesn't matter if you pick out just the right dress or tie for the Easter worship service. When we decorate the cross with flowers, which we're going to do next Sunday, it doesn't matter how beautiful that looks. It doesn't matter if you bring the most expensive bouquet of the most beautiful flowers. None of that matters if inside, if in the heart, we're full of dead men's bones, if we're full of spiritual rot and decay. Because that's what God sees. So I don't know how you did on the examination. I, I took this examination, and I suspect that we all have traces of this self-righteousness in us. And I think the call of Easter as we head into it is to just be honest about it with ourselves and with the Lord and repent. Jesus came to call, but Jesus does not call self-righteous people. Last point, Jesus calls sinners. Those who are well, back in Mark 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now remember, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All people. Think of the the most holy person you know. Without Jesus Christ, they are in the category of sinner. Now, when he says sinners here, when the Pharisees see him eating, let's look back at verses 15 through 16. As Jesus reclined at table in his house, the tax collector's house, with many tax collectors and sinners reclining with him and his disciples, for there are many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And they don't specify who these sinners are, what they're doing. But from other scriptures, we know that usually that term is applied to people like the tax collectors, uh, people like money lenders who would lend money to poor people and then just enslave them to high interest for the rest of their lives. It's greedy, manipulative, conniving people. And it also is often used to refer to prostitutes. Okay, but the big idea is these are the people who externally were clearly sinful, just obviously sinful. They wore it on their sleeves. They wore it visibly in their lives. These were the sinners. And Jesus is just hanging out with them. Now, he's not standing outside of Levi's house handing out gospel tracts. He's inside. He's reclined with them. He's eating with them. He's sharing a meal. To get our heads around what this might have looked like, picture Billy Graham in his prime holding a massive outreach event down, you know, in Charlotte. And after it's over, he leaves and investigative journalists are following him, just waiting for him to slip up. And so they're following to see where he goes after he leaves the big crusade. And he goes to the worst side of Charlotte. And he goes into the home of a notorious bad guy. Imagine whatever you will. Maybe it's uh, uh, Patrick Cannon's house, you know, right after the news came out of what happened. You know, everybody just knows loathsome sin. He goes in there. In there with him are just, you know, all the... The drug dealers of the city, prostitutes, Billy Graham's just hanging out with them. And you can imagine what the religious people, you know, on the blogs would go crazy. We thought we could trust this man, but now he shows us true colors. These are the people he likes to hang out with. That's sort of the controversy that Jesus is causing here. A religious Jew is not supposed to hang out with these people. But there he is. Now, none of you guys are tax collectors. Um... I don't think any of you guys are money lenders. I don't think any of you guys are prostitutes. Um, But, you know, the sins that we commit are just as bad in God's eyes. What's the difference between, on a large scale, like, uh, you know, a huge scale Ponzi scheme where you're just ripping people off like crazy versus our pride? What's really the substantive difference there? It's different in, in the amount of people it visibly hurts, but in God's eyes, they're, they're equally vile, equally sinful. Or what's the difference between these obvious sins and the gossip that many of us perpetrate? Or the lies, or just not loving God, but worshiping something else, and not loving others as ourselves. See, the fact that Jesus would come and dine and go into the place of the sinner, into the sinner's den, is really good news for us. Because remember, we're not righteous. We're the sinners. In this story, we are the sinners. And he comes and he calls us, people like you, to follow him. People like me, he calls us to follow him. What good news. So as we go into Easter, let's hear this call. Let's respond to the call. Let's not be like the scribes and think of ourselves as already righteous. Let's afresh and anew get up and follow Jesus together. Now, I want before, before we close, and our closing is going to be a little different. Um, Sandy and the worship team are going to come, and they're going to sing a song called Nothing Compares. And 
as they do, I want these scriptures to ring in your mind. Okay, and you can close your eyes and bow your head for this so, so that all you're hearing is God's word. I'm going to read you just a couple of scriptures. Try to internalize them as you hear them. And meditate on these as they come and sing in just a few moments. First is Romans 5, 6-8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then finally, 1 Timothy 1.15. May we say this with the Apostle Paul here. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus... Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus came, and that he came to call sinners to follow him. That he didn't just come to the most seemingly religiously righteous, but he came on a mission of mercy and grace. That he came all the way down into the sinner's den to call sinners to follow him. Help us to shed off any self-righteousness this Easter. Help us to be completely free and humble. To, like Levi, to just stand up and to follow Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.